If you're staying in the room, I want to invite you to take out a copy of God's Word, this precious book, Holy Scripture. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. The order of that, if you have a Bible, get it out. If you don't have a Bible and someone next to you does have a Bible, ask them if you can look off of their copy of God's Word. If neither of you have a Bible, you can get out a phone and you can get out the Bible app. If all of that fails, then you can use the screens that are behind me. We'll have some scripture on the screens. But what I want, and the reason I say that every week, is I want you to dig in. I want your face. I would rather see the tops of your head than to see your eyes because I want you to be diving into God's Word with me. This is, as we're going to see in this passage, this is the Word of life. And so we, we want to remain focused in it. We're going to continue to walk verse by verse through the book of Philippians. Uh, we're in the middle of this series. And the, the reason that we're walking through this book is we want to discover how we can be happier Christians and how our church can be an environment of joy in a world of sorrow. This week, we're going to discover in Philippians 2, 12 through 18, how joy can be found in obedience. Obedience to the Lord leads to joy in the Lord. Now, if we were doing a word association game and I gave you the word obedience and told you to think of another word, the first word to come to mind is probably not joy, right? Or, or happiness, or just rapture. You're just, oh, yes, I, yeah, I love it. No, um, my wife, Erica, she is a third grade teacher. And so she gives a lot of expectations. She has a lot of rules for her classroom. And when she gives an expectation or when she gives a rule for obedience, she probably hears, bruh, more than she does, yay, yes, what else can we do? Miss Gilbert, we can't wait to obey every single thing that you say. No, it's bruh, like that. And that's a new one, by the way. I, I never, I never uh, used that word growing up. So Erica, she told me, I mean, surely you never talk to your parents or teachers like that. And I was like, next question, please. Um, no, no comment on, on that. But I, I, do, I do see your point. That is, that is not good. Um, but children, they don't like to obey. And, and for us, we, we don't tend to just, just, oh, we can't wait to obey the next command. That's not typically how we think of obedience. The Christian life is, is more like those, those third graders in, in her class. Now, some of us are eager to obey, but maybe we're doing it because we feel this inner guilt that we have to prove ourselves worthy of God's love. And so maybe we either grew up in a church tradition or, or we just have a faulty logic when it comes to the Christian life, and we think that in order for God to love me, and in order for God to save me, in order for me to have eternal life and to have hope after death, the only way for that to happen is I have to live up to my end of the deal. God sent Jesus. I have to obey him at every turn. And if I obey him enough, then he'll accept me. And so, so maybe some of you think of obedience like that. And then on the flip side, there are those of us who think of obedience as, as something that just really doesn't have much of a place in the Christian life. Jesus is my obedience. He is my righteousness. We take these truths and we twist them and we say, it really doesn't matter how I live. I mean, sure, it's good sometimes to obey God's word, but I don't have to because Jesus obeyed it for me. That's also faulty. Paul gives us something different. I should have titled the sermon series Surprised by Joy. <coughs> C.S. Lewis stole the title, so I couldn't um, 
I'm sorry, trademarked. Um, but uh, no, I should have, because that's what keeps happening to me as I study Philippians. And I'm not surprised that God wants us to be joyful. I'm not surprised by that. When you read the Old Testament and you read the New Testament and you see the character of God, it is not a surprise that a God of joy wants his people to be joyful. What I continue to be surprised by are the sources of joy. What have we seen so far? There is joy to be had in the fact of the church. The church? There's joy in the midst of people who, who are, are sinful and, and you know, have, have very little in common other than Jesus. There's joy in the fact that this group of people comes together. Yeah, there's joy in that. Suffering? There's joy to be found in hardship, in trials, in suffering. It's a strange logic, and, and that continues today. The way that Paul calls us to a life of obedience in this passage shows us that there is joy to be found in it. And we're going to learn three things this morning about obedience and hopefully leave motivated to obey the Lord, not out of guilt, but for the sake of more joy in him. Three things we're going to learn this morning. First, we're going to learn how obedience works. How obedience works. Second, we're going to learn what obedience does, the effect that it has. And then third, we're going to learn what obedience requires. So how it works, what it does, and what it requires of us. Okay, first, how obedience works. Uh, if you have been journeying with us through Philippians, we know that Paul has just walked us through the example that Jesus has set for us through his death and resurrection. That glorious passage in Philippians 2, especially from verse 5 to verse 11. Jesus, we saw, is our ultimate example of the kind of humility that builds us up together as a church. As God, we saw that Jesus emptied himself. As a man, we saw that Jesus humbled himself. And in his state of humiliation, we've seen that Jesus isn't just the ultimate example of humility. Jesus is also the ultimate example of obedience. Paul wrote in that section that Jesus became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, which is why he begins this section in verse 12. If you look down in, in your Bible or on your friend's Bible or on your phone or then on the screen in verse 12, that's why he begins verse 12 with the word, therefore. On the basis of Jesus, the God-man who humbled himself in obedience to the point of death and then was exalted as the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth through resurrection, Paul turns back to the Philippians' daily lives as Christians and says, let me get really practical now. We've done some theology, now let's get practical. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Paul's saying, since Jesus set forth the ultimate example of obedience, go and do likewise. Obey now as you have before. Keep obeying the Lord. And connecting back to the central thesis of the letter that we saw in Philippians 1, verse 27. And go ahead, if you, if you haven't been walking with us, turn back to that. Uh, chapter 1, verse 27, it says, at the beginning anyway, 
Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is the central thesis of the letter to the Philippians. Paul is reminding the Philippian believers that the gospel-worthy life is made on our end through obedience. Now, you've probably heard the word obedience a lot. Maybe, maybe at home from your parents, maybe, maybe at school, or you know, maybe as you grew up in church, and you may have a particular idea of what obedience is, but what is it? What is obedience? Especially as we think about it in terms of our relation to God and his word. What is it? When it's raw form, obedience involves, if you could think of it this way, it involves our head, it involves our heart, and it involves our hands. Okay, so obedience involves our head. It begins with an acknowledgement of God's sovereign right as Lord over our lives. When we struggle to obey anyone, what, what usually is something that, that we're struggling with? Respecting their authority. Obedience begins with an acknowledgement in your mind, God has the right to tell me what to do. He has the sovereign right to set the prerogative of my life. Well, obedience also involves your heart. So not only do you have to have that knowledge, you have to know that God has the right to command you. You also have to have a willful submission to that authority. You have to willfully submit to God's authority. Obedience is impossible apart from that. You can't, you can't just you know, back into obedience. Like all of us know with our children or, or if, you, if you teach in any way, if you have authority over anyone in any way, there has to be a willful recognition of the heart. And it could come from bad motivations or it could come from good motivations, but there has to be willful submission to authority in order for obedience to happen. So it involves your head, it involves your heart. Finally, it involves your hands. It involves a regular practice of doing what God says. So you can't, you can't say, yes, I acknowledge God is the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. And oh, yes, I want to submit to him. And then actively, practically disobey him all the time. It's not obedience. You can acknowledge him all day long. You can have a heart that says, yes, I want to submit to the Lord. But if you're not actually doing it, if you're not actually doing what God says, then you're not obeying. So obedience involves those three things. Your head, uh, an acknowledgement of God's sovereignty. Your heart, a willful submission to his authority. And your hands, a regular practice of doing what God says. So this is our framework as we think about and we use this word obedience. Obedience is also a natural and essential part of the Christian life. And, you know, there are some people, as I said earlier, who get really uncomfortable when you start talking about obedience in the Christian life too much. Like that's, that's too much works, not enough grace. You use the word obedience too much, and I'm going to start to think that you might be a legalist, that you might be saying that you have to obey in order to earn favor from God. Um, that thought never entered into the mind of the Apostle Paul, that obedience was somehow a taboo word for the Christian life. It was a natural, essential part of the Christian life for Paul. That's why he says, Beloved, as you have always obeyed, uh, he, he's commending them. He's going to say, work out your own salvation. Continue to obey as you always have. You've been doing it right. Keep it up. Keep obeying the Lord. It's something that's natural. It's something that is essential. And, and that's so important because there are some of us that start to get really nervous when we come across words in the Christian life like duty, must, ought, command, 
and we don't really know what to do with it because our logic is twisted. <coughs> we think, I've been accepted by God apart from my works, so my works don't matter. Paul steps in and he says, no, you don't understand what's going on here. You have been accepted by God apart from your works, and now your works matter. What you do actually matters. It's, it's a very different logic. So he begins with this exhortation, continue to obey as you always have. But Paul then takes the definition a step further, or maybe we could say he takes it a step down beneath the surface to show us how obedience actually plays out, how it actually works. Paul equates obedience with this phrase, work out your own salvation. Now let's look at it really carefully in verse 12 and not get lost in some of the language in between. So he essentially says in verse 12, as you have always obeyed, okay, find that phrase, as you have always obeyed, and then go down a little further in the verse, he says, as you have always obeyed, work out your salvation. Now in between, he says, he has this phrase, not only in my absence, but much more, or not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. But he's essentially saying here, therefore, as you have always obeyed, work out your own salvation. What's he doing here? Well, he's giving us a paradigm for thinking about how obedience actually functions in our lives. How does it work? How do we obey God? Well, he shows us here that obedience is equated to, is the same thing as, an outworking of our salvation. It is a playing out. It is a manifestation. It is a display. It is a, a continual process of our salvation, of the saving grace that we experienced at conversion. Obedience is more than just knowing the rules and following the rules. To obey the Lord is to literally work your salvation out. And working out your salvation simply means that we show the fruit of God's saving grace in our lives. That's all it is. Now, how do we do this? Well, obedience involves two parts. We work out our salvation by being active in our pursuit of Christ. And God works out our salvation to bring about his will. God works and we work. So first, obedience involves work from us. <coughs> we must actively follow Jesus. Now, we've seen this earlier in Philippians, but it is especially clear here. We cannot grow in Christ passively. Can't do it. We have to work. We have to deny ourselves. We have to serve others. We have to put sin to death. We have to crucify the fleshly desires that still linger in us. We have to commit ourselves to knowing God's word. We have to devote ourselves to prayer. We have to regularly participate in corporate worship. <coughs> we cannot work out our own salvation. We can't show the fruit of God's saving grace apart from the duty, responsibility, and discipline of obedience. You are not going to coast into a godly life. You're not going to experience the benefits of salvation through a lazy, apathetic approach to the Christian life. It's not going to happen. 
Now, how often do you think of your life in Christ as a responsibility? Do you think of it that way? Or do you just think of it as something that, I mean, yeah, I believe this thing at some point, and my family had a tradition of going to church, so I just do that, and, you know, 30 years have passed, and here I am, still, still doing that thing. Is it passive? Is it just kind of happening to you? Or do you view your Christian life as, as a Christian man, as a Christian woman, I have a distinct responsibility. I have a responsibility to obey the teachings of Scripture. I have a responsibility to, to care and love and serve other people. It's not just a good thing I should do. I'm responsible to do that. I have a duty. I, I have a command. I need to obey this. Obedience involves work from us. But that's only half the story. Obedience also involves work from God. And this, this is so immensely encouraging. Because if I'm honest with you, when I think about trying to be a more obedient Christian, I'm so prone to think about all the ways I fail to do that well. I'll, I'll come across something in God's word that challenges me. I'll, I'll you know, struggle with a particular sinful attitude or action and struggle to put it to death in my life and just feel completely hopeless if I'm left to my own power to, to grow in Christ. But we're not left to our own power. Look what he says. The end of verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Well, he says in verse 13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That, that's amazing. Who's working, God or his people? Both. <coughs> we work out our salvation. Why? It is God who works in us. Our working, our obedience is motivated by God's working. Notice how Paul transitions from our work to God's work. He says, work out your salvation for it is God who works we work because God works. We obey. We put sin to death. We pursue holiness. We work because God is at work in our hearts. And we should be encouraged by this. Aren't you so thankful that he did not say, okay, you are forgiven now. You're forgiven. Clean slate. Now it's up to you to get it right. Aren't you so thankful that he didn't say that? He says, no, you're forgiven now work this out in your life. Work, work it out. Figure out how to apply the saving grace that you've received in every single area of your life. Learn to live the obedient life. And I am with you. I am with you. My grace is not something that you experienced in one moment in time. My grace is something that continues on and on with you. As Lucas reminded us in our equipping class this morning, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Not just in the past at the moment of your conversion. It continues on and on. This empowering grace continues to be with you. The Lord will see to it that you will reach the end of your sanctification. And he does it through your work. The logic of sanctification goes like this. God is at work in you. And so everything you do matters. Everything you do matters to grow in grace. And it's so important to understand that that is what's operating at the heart of your Christian life. God's work and your work. This is how you grow. So, track with me. 
There is joy in obedience when you realize how it works. Obedience isn't something you have to do to earn God's favor. Obedience is necessary and it requires work from you. And the gritty discipline required to become obedient to the Lord is motivated by his working in you. So, hear me loud and clear. In Christ, you have a life that deeply matters. Deeply matters. Every word you speak, every action you take, deeply, eternally matters for you and for others. And you shouldn't be crushed by that as a burden. You should be lifted up because while you are responsible, you have a purpose, you have a meaning, you have a duty in life to advance God's kingdom. God is working in you the whole way. So rejoice in how obedience works. But second thing we need to see here that we're going to learn is what obedience does. Now, when you develop a life of obedience, there are particular outcomes that follow. So if you, when you obey the Lord in, in individual actions or just wholesale attitudes that you start to have, and you're, you're aligning your life with God's will and God's word, certain things will happen. I want to show you two from this passage. First, obedience showcases our belonging. So after giving a specific example of obedience in verse 14, do all things, if you look with me, do all things without grumbling or disputing, Paul gives the reason to obey this command and any other command you would find in Scripture. And it's really important. He says, so that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Okay. Now there are two ways we can take this phrase. Two ways. First, we, we could understand Paul as meaning something like, okay, in this case, do all things without grumbling. So if we use the example that he gives us here, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? So that you can become a child of God. That's one way we could take it. So that you could become a child of God, so that you could become blameless so that you can absolve your own guilt and become innocent. And in this case, our obedience would merit or earn our place in the family of God. It would, it would grant us a belonging with him. And we might naturally be attracted to that because that's kind of how life in our world works a lot of times, isn't it? If you want a promotion, you can't just hope that your boss decides to just give it to you. You have to earn it. If you want to belong on a, on a team or in a group, you, you have to meet the requirements in order to get in. You have to do something. And so if we read here, you have to obey. Do all things without grumbling. Obey the Lord so that you can earn a place with him. We may be attracted to that. Now, this would, of course, make obedience immensely important, but it would also turn obedience into a terrible terrible burden 
not anything to rejoice in. If our salvation was on the line every time we're presented with a choice to obey the Lord or not, we might initially be motivated by that guilt, but it would not take long for the burden of merit-based obedience to beat us down. But thankfully, there's a better way to understand what Paul's saying here. Paul is, is actually saying something more like this. Obey the Lord. In this case, do all things without grumbling, so that you may be blameless and innocent, a child of God without blemish in the end, because, or in the sense that, this is evidence that you are covered by the blood of Christ. Obedience, obedience to the Lord is a way that we prove that we, that we, we showcase, that we, we uh, uh, provide evidence for our belonging. We belong first, and our obedience is the proof that we belong. Our obedience to the Lord shows that we are his. And obedience, in this case, can now be joyful, because every opportunity you have to obey the Lord is an opportunity to inject assurance into your heart. Have you ever thought about obedience in this way? That every time you obey a command from the Lord, you actually should be deeply assured of your salvation. Because only those who are counted as innocent, counted as blameless, adopted into God's family as his children, will desire to, to change their lives and align their lives with what he wants. And so anytime you do that, anytime you just start to live your life in a way that lines up with what God says in his word, Oh my goodness, you should be deeply assured of your own salvation. Not because your obedience is earning your salvation, but because your obedience is evidence of your salvation. There's so much joy to be found in it when you view it this way. You're not obeying to earn a place with God, you're obeying to show you already have a place with him. Our obedience to the Lord proves that we belong to him. And if you have children, you know, you know how this works. This is, this is a positive thing, and it's a negative thing. It's always a funny thing, though. Whenever your kids act in any way, what do they always say? Especially when we go back home and visit our family in Kentucky and uh, our, poor, our poor children, anytime they do anything that reminds anyone of me, they go, oh, that's, your dad. That's, that's his daddy's boy right there. It sure is, his daddy's boy. You know, and his, his, uh, his behavior is proving, or their behavior is proving that they belong to me. Usually it's negative, and they, I'm like, man, why you got to just out all of us? Just put us all down, you know? It's never anything just positive. But you know how it works. Same thing with God's people. We prove that God is our Father through the way that we live. So obedience showcases our belonging. But obedience also showcases God's glory. When you obey the Lord, it has this profound impact, not only on you, but on other people. Look what he says. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And then verse 15. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Our obedience causes us to stand out. Now, not in a, in a really strange or weird or funky way, and, and not in a way that, highlights how we've just figured it all out. And look how much better we are than everybody else. Oh, we're shining like lights from heaven in the way that we live. Why don't you guys just figure it out? No, 
We, we are shining the way that a mirror shines, in the way that it reflects light. And so, so that's, that's what we become. We become reflections of God's glory when we align our lives with his character and with his will. So in a world of sin and darkness, an obedient Christian shines with the light of the glory of God. And really, this works in two ways. First, when you choose obedience to the Lord, you're actually choosing to behave in ways that please him. You're, you're choosing a life that, that lines up with what he wants. And you're often resisting the ways of the world or the will of your own sinful flesh. Obedience chooses gratitude over grumbling. It chooses love over hatred. It chooses joy over bitterness. It chooses grace over harshness. It chooses God over anything that contradicts him. So do you see how that glorifies him? How, that, how you become a shining light of God's glory? Obedience to the Lord highlights the surpassing worth of God's will and his ways. Obedience demonstrates that God's ways are better, that his will is superior to anything else in the world. There are no alternatives that can compete. But you also shine as, as lights in another way. Obedience showcases God's glory also because our new lives show other people what God is like. Have you ever thought about that? If you're a Christian in this room, something's actually happening in you every day through the power of the Spirit and through your discipline to, to uh, open the Scriptures and read them and commune with the Lord through prayer and His people. Something's happening. You are slowly but surely being transformed into the very image of Christ. Slowly but surely. Your actions, your attitudes, the words that you speak should look more and more, resemble, reflect more and more Jesus himself. So when you obey the Lord, you glorify him, you shine as a light by looking like God. It's amazing. When other people interact with you and, and they receive sacrificial kindness and love and service and care, they are seeing the very heart of God, and in that, God is glorified. So obedience is joyful because of the effect it has, what it does. It's a, it's a source of deep assurance of your identity as a child of God, and it turns your life into a spotlight on the glory of God. There's one more thing to see here. We need to see what obedience requires. What does it require? How can we actually practically live a more obedient life? Because it's beautiful how it works. It's amazing. And the effects that we see from it are so wonderful. But what does it require of us? Well, maybe first we need to ask, what will keep us from an obedient life? What keeps you from obeying the Lord? What keeps me from obeying the Lord? I want to highlight three things that will keep you, keep me from obeying God this week and forevermore. Number one, grumbling. A grumbling heart will always and forever struggle to be an obedient heart before the Lord. Grumbling. Number two, apathy. Apathy. Few things are more paralyzing than apathy when it comes to, to obeying the Lord. And the third thing, comfort. Grumbling, apathy, 
and comfort will keep you from obeying the Lord almost more than anything else. Now, what's interesting about that is Paul offers three countercultural attitudes of the heart that will be required for us to live obediently that contradicts each of these problems that we have. Obedience, according to Paul, essentially requires three things. Grateful hearts, commitment to God's word, and sacrifice. Gratitude, commitment, and sacrifice. Obedience requires gratitude. And I'm, I'm very glad that it does because we are very prone to grumble. Verse 14 is actually a bit surprising. It comes in, it's, it's a little bit of a shock. Um, it's just given us a framework for thinking about sanctification. We work out our salvation as God who has saved us continues to work in us. And then Paul says this, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now he doesn't tell us to do anything. You notice that? There's not a single thing that Paul says for us to actively do. All he says is, do all things in anything that you would ever do. How humbling is that, by the way? In anything that you would ever do, do it without grumbling. Not even going to give you examples, Paul says. Just in anything, in all things, do it without grumbling. All of our obedience must be clothed with gratitude. This language actually calls the familiar Bible reader back to the Israelites. The Israelites in their many years wandering through the wilderness. Do you remember why the people of Israel took so long to possess the promised land? Do you remember why they continually faced and put themselves under the judgment of the Lord? Do you know why? And we would often say, well, they're disobedience. They disobeyed the Lord. They broke the covenant with him. You know what's interesting about that? Paul actually says in 1 Corinthians 10 that one big factor to their failure to possess the promised land was their grumbling. Their grumbling, their complaining, their, their lack of contentment in the Lord and what, and what he was providing for them. A grumbling, complaining, and if we take the word disputing and we say quarrelsome, a grumbling, complaining, quarrelsome heart will always struggle to submit in trust and obedience to the Lord. Again, we know this with, with our children. If, if you remember being a teenager, how that was, what, what was often the biggest conflicts you had with your parents? You didn't want to do what they said, but it usually was in the context of you griping and complaining about whatever it is that they're expecting you to do. The re Why is that? Why is that so common? Why is griping, complaining, grumbling like hand in hand with disobedience? A grumbling heart can't submit. It can't. A grumbling heart cannot simply trust that the will of another is better than their own. Whenever we find ourselves grumbling, we are telling God and we're telling others and we're telling ourselves that our hearts are not content. 
we're not okay with the way things are, and that we know a better path or future for us. So simple gratitude for what the Lord has granted, simple gratitude for where he has us in life, helps us obey regardless of the circumstances we face. And this was important for the Philippians to realize because they were already suffering and they would soon face even worse persecution. It would have been tempting and understandable if if they had been given over to grumbling. And and some of your own grumbling may be understandable. If you're you're just complaining a lot right now and you told me why you were, I mean, I might say, I I get it. I get it. That's really hard. I get it. That's that's really frustrating. But the truth of of the matter is, It will never serve you, and it will never serve others. Grumbling always keeps us wandering in the wilderness, far from God's will and his ways. So if you want to learn glad obedience to God, a great first step may just be to lay your grumbling aside. Take stock of the manifold goodness of God and respond to him with gratitude. Obedience also requires a commitment to God's word. And this is important because we are so often paralyzed by apathy. Paul says that the path to an obedient life is found through holding fast to the word of life. That's what he says in verse 16. Holding fast to the word of life. Paul beams with pride at the thought of the Philippians holding fast to God's word. He wants them to hold fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. A lack of obedience is often coupled with a cold apathy toward God's word. And that makes total sense. If you're apathetic toward God's word, you're going to be apathetic toward his will and toward his ways. And we possess in this book right here, the words of life. And Paul gives us a very simple exhortation here. Hold fast to them. Remain committed to them. Devote yourself to them. Read them. Meditate on them. Memorize them. There is life on the pages of Holy Scripture. And our obedience will correlate with our love and devotion for the word of the Lord. So get in the word if you want to live an obedient life to the Lord. And finally, we see one last thing here that's so easy to miss. Obedience requires sacrifice. So, so it requires gratitude, it requires commitment, and, and it requires sacrifice. And that's good news because we are often held captive by comfort. Paul ends this entire section with a personal appeal. It's very personal. Uh, a lot of emotion. He writes, Even if I am to be poured out, as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, this is what we need to to admit up front. Obedience to the Lord is not usually comfortable. And in fact, it it can be rather uncomfortable to start lining your life up with God's word. For some of us, it'll be more uncomfortable than for others, depending on our background and where we currently are in life. And this is a big problem for us because one of the things we love more than anything else is comfort. We want our lives to be easy. 
But there is no inerrant virtue in an easy life. And if we are never challenged, if we are never made to feel uncomfortable in the Christian life, I have to be honest with you, it is worth asking if we are actually actively following Jesus. Or if, as I said in the beginning, we're just kind of passively allowing the Christian life to just happen to us. If we are truly working out our own salvation, it should, in a sense, feel like we're working out. It's not comfortable. Listen, I played in a three-on-three basketball tournament last weekend with Brian and Jason for the first time in about six years. There was nothing comfortable about that, okay? I, I, got, I was like, man, I'm going to be feeling this in the morning. Nope, didn't need the morning. As soon as I got home, I, I sat down. My calves were on fire. It was awful. I woke up the next day. I was like, what, do I have a back anymore? What happened to it? It was rough. Um, and so, but, but here's the thing. It was so awesome playing with those guys. I had so much fun. It was so enjoyable. There was joy in it, even though there wasn't that much comfort. The obedient life is a joyful life, but it is not a comfortable life. You'll have to deny yourself certain pleasures. There may be relationships you have right now that because you obey the Lord, you no longer have those relationships in the future. That's, that's easy to say. That is a very real thing that could happen. And it is a hard thing that you would have to walk through. You'll be, you'll be faced with rebuke and correction from God's word. You'll have to stop doing things that you want to keep doing. And you'll have to start doing things that you'd rather not do. Do you remember how Jesus described the Christian life? We shouldn't be surprised by this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And then he says later, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is the life that we've been called to live. A self-sacrificial life of obedience to the Lord. And, and though it will no doubt be uncomfortable, it will without a doubt be worth every sacrifice. Paul rejoiced in the prospect of sacrificing himself for the sake of the Philippians. For their sake, he is glad to give his life. So even if the obedient life costs us our lives... All loss will turn for gain, and every ounce of sorrow will be replaced with joy. As Jesus himself said, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Now, joy may not be the first word that you associate with obedience, but I hope that you have seen in the scriptures, and I hope that you will see every day as you follow Jesus intentionally, that choosing his ways over your own is the path to a more joyful life. Now, Paul's logic, it may seem strange, but this is the way of Christ. Jesus was obedient to the will of the Father to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why did he do that? It was for the joy that was set before him. Despite the suffering he knew he would endure, Jesus willingly chose the obedient and sacrificial path 
for our sake. Confident that as we work out our salvation, God is working in us through gratitude, commitment to the word, a willingness to lay down our very lives. Let's follow the example of Jesus. And let's find that the obedient life holds out pleasures now and forevermore.